Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today, we're speaking with Rudy Landeros, a former Austin police officer and United Nations senior police advisor. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Can you introduce yourself with uh, who you are, where you live, and what you do? Okay. My name is Rudy Landeros. Uh, I live here in Austin. I've lived in Austin all my life, except for when I was, uh, when we moved from down Robstown, Texas to Austin when I was about five. And uh, uh, I spent 24 and a half years with the Austin Police Department. Uh, I retired in 2006 as an assistant chief. And then after that, I moved on to uh, the um, uh, to work for the United Nations for eight years. I spent three years, five years in Sierra Leone, West Africa, and then three years in Afghanistan. So, but once again, I, I lived in Austin all my life, most of all my life. Went to elementary, junior high, high school, and university. graduated from University of Texas. Welcome. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Can't wait football season starts. Yeah, yeah. What was it like growing up in Austin and now seeing how much it's changed? It was. I liked it simply because the, back then, the community, your neighbors were real close, and it was it was kind of difficult because uh, our parents were were poor, and uh, so our electricity used to get cut off, our water get cut off, and then going back to how close you were with your neighbors, they always came to your rescue. If if the electricity went out. Immediately, here comes a, a, an electric cord, an extension cord, and you'd hook up. Or if uh, the water's cut off, here they come with buckets filling up barrels. I mean, barrels or, or tubs. So, and uh, one thing about living in Metopolis is we used to go play in this wooded area right down by the by the Colorado River. So that's where we spent a lot of our time before, you know. So that's that's uh, growing up in Austin was fun. I, I enjoyed it. We used to, my first job when I started, when I was about eight years old, my father put me, first of all, and then I'll move on. My father had me shining shoes on 6th Street, though, just between 35 and, and Congress. I used to shine shoes. And then after that, uh, my dad decided, well, we're, we're, you know, we're going to go as a family, except he didn't go. But it was me, my mother, my brother, my first brother. And uh, we, we went back home, my hometown. Is I was born in Robstown, Texas, which is right next to Corpus Christi, and so every summer, until until my uh, uh, right before I went into high school, every summer we went and picked cotton every summer, and so what I liked about it was me and my grandmother, mi abuela, we were mi abuelita, we were very very close. We loved her because she was just she was a great lady. 
and uh, very loving, very supportive. So we used to go pick cotton wear. And so come lunchtime, I mean, you're in a field with no trees, very few trees. And so for lunchtime, we'd all get under the trucks. And if you, once you got past the smell of the, the diesel or gas, it was great because it was, it was cool. And plus, you know, we're young kids, so we were always talking to my grandma, you know, and tell her some of the adventures we had while picking cotton. Because, I mean, and so that, I mean, just the love for our grandmother, for the grandkids, we, that's why it was fun going every summer. We'd go back every summer. And what was one, one thing about my grandmother and my mother is they, they gave us a quota. There was a quota of cotton that we, we had to pick. And so it was 100 pounds per, for me and my brother. We had to pick a hunt. And so after a while, we got really good at picking me and our quota. And a lot of the kids that picked out there was great because there was a lot of kids our age that were out there also working in the fields. And so a lot of them had a quota. And when we finished the quota, we finished maybe an hour or two before it was time to leave. So one thing that I remember, when you were driving up on the cotton field, if you saw some trees in the middle of this cotton field, the first thing that came to your mind was, all right, there's going to be a stock tank. And so we would do it when, our, when it was time to leave. I mean, to, I mean time when we finished picking our, 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 our quota, we would run, all the kids would run in and jump in, just swim and you know, walk around in the, I mean, play in the water. So, and uh, that was really, really great. You always had to be careful in some of the, these uh, stock tanks where you're going to swim because you always had to look because, believe it or not, there was alligators. There were in South Texas, in the South Plains, the coastal plains, there's alligators. And so that's one thing you have to be very careful is if you saw them, their heads, you didn't go swimming in it. So, but we did that until, I said, so when I was about from eight years old until right before I went into high school. Our cotton picking days came to an end when we came to Austin. My father, for some reason, decided we were going to pick cotton in Austin. He didn't want to go back to Robstown anymore. So we picked that the, the summer before my high school, before I was a high school freshman, we picked in the, in the Austin area, around Lockhart and those areas. And can you talk about the Cesar Chavez march? Oh, that was very, very interesting. Back in 1966, Cesar Chavez, uh, uh, as you know, was leading Huelgas. Uh, um, I mean, and what they did is back in 66, there was a whole group of farm workers. They marched from the, via, from the valley to Austin and, and what they, were, they were marching for higher wages and because uh, they were earning anywhere from 30 to 50 cents an hour. So but Cesar Chavez was leading the march. And my grandmother, which my grandma must have been in her 60s, late 60s. She came, she marched, but she came to Austin because once again, my, my grandparents, my, my, my mother's side, they, they were farm workers. They picked all over, the, all over the country. And so, but she came down because she supported, she supported the issue. Uh, and, uh, and I remember that day because we marched, me and my mother and my brother, we marched, we, we, it started, it was unbelievable. Uh, we started, at, everybody met, the marchers that came down from the, from the, from the valley, they met at uh, St. Edward's University. And I remember the whole, it was covered with people. And, and, 
And then we started marching, and Cesar Chavez, like I said, was, was, Cesar Chavez was leading the, the march, and we marched right down Congress all the way uh, uh, up to the Capitol. And so I remember at Riverside and, and Congress, I remember looking back, and the whole, all the way back was just covered. There must have been at least 8,000 people plus that came to march. And then when we got to, we crossed the Congress Bridge, and then when we got to about third or fourth street at Congress, that's where my mom told the kids, you guys wait here. Because they were expecting, they were expecting uh, uh, violence at the Capitol. Because the, the governor who was, who was the guy, the governor, uh, Connolly, Basically, he said, nope, we're not inviting you. You're not welcome, welcome here. They closed the Capitol down. You know, they closed it down completely. And so they were, they were expecting violence, and that's why my mom and grandma just left us there. But, I, but that was unbelievable. I remember seeing Cesar Chavez. At that, when, at that point, when I, was, I didn't really know who he was until my grandma told me he is, he's the one that's asking and fighting for to raise our raise, I mean wages while we were, when we work in the fields, so that was that was that was fantastic. That must have been quite the sight. I can't imagine. I was unbelievable as a, a small kid from Austin. I had never been among that many people before ever. And so then you went to UT. Yes. Can you talk about your experience there? What you got your degree in? My grades were good enough to graduate, but not enough to get into UT. So I ended up going to Southwest Texas State, which is Texas State now, for two years. And then I transferred to Texas. Uh, this was in 73 when I started going to school and then transferred to Texas in 75. It was different because you didn't see that many people were color. You didn't. I mean, it was it was kind of you know coming from a high school, my high school, Johnston High School, it was predominantly black and Hispanic. I mean, that was and so so you're used to that. I mean, four years, and then when we went to college, I went to college, uh, and then transferred to Texas. It's you you just you didn't see people of color. You'd be in a class, and maybe you were the only person, and and it, it kind of. It's just different. It was hard work, but I, I did graduate in 1978 from the University of Texas. I taught school in East Austin at Gold Valley Elementary, and I loved it. Oh, I loved teaching. Uh, and you don't you you don't go teach because you want to make money. But the problem is that I mean, the wages for teachers even today it's horrible. It's horrible. But think of it back what what it was like back in 78. My first year as a teacher, $10,000. And oh, and so after three years, you know, it was getting worse. It was hard to support your habits like paying utilities and groceries and rent. So, but, and then I was, um, when I was teaching, one of my best friends, high school fr friend, childhood friend, he graduated from St. Ed's and, and then he became an Austin police officer. And while I was teaching, he kept asking me, Come ride with me. Come do a ride along with me. But I just I didn't feel comfortable. Finally, he convinced me. I saw a road that first night that hooked me. I mean, it was he was working East Austin, and, and that just uh, that was the end of my teaching career. So I became a police officer. I was a, uh, uh, I became a police officer commissioned in eighty two April of eighty two. And so most of my career with the police department was working in in East Austin. Uh, as a patrol officer, 
they had back then there was a program, the, a unit called the Hispanic Crimes Unit. There was a large population of undocumented workers, uh, mainly from Mexico, living in, in East Austin. And so as a patrol officer on a normal weekend, just a normal weekend, you'd have anywhere from 15 to 25 aggravated robberies of undocumented uh, uh, immigrants. An aggravated robbery is a person uses a deadly weapon, a weapon to commit the crime. And some of these attacks against the immigrants, at first what they were doing is they were, they were taking their money and then attacking them. And then, but then after a while, they would just immediately start attacking them, then rob them. So, but there was, they were having 15 to 25 every, every weekend. So the, the Austin Police Department, uh, they formed, uh, it was called the Hispanic Crimes Unit. And I, I was chosen, there was four of us. There was four of us, I was a sergeant and four patrol officers, and we, it was a plainclothes unit. And so our job was to, to investigate these cases. Because uh, what was happening in the robbery detail back then, most of the robbery detectives didn't speak Spanish. So what was happening is a lot of the, case, the robbery cases against undocumented uh, were not being investigated. And back then, a lot of the immigrants, and I think it's probably still the same, they're scared of the uh, uh, police because they're afraid that, they'll, that if they report a crime, they're going you know, to be deported. So they formed this this this, this unit, and for, I was in it for three years, and and we arrested so many thugs. Basically, that's what they were, thugs. We arrested so many of them in those three years. So I that was, but that was in my career. That was I really enjoyed that because you were making life safe for these guys, for the, for these immigrants. And uh, with the police department, I kept advancing. I worked my way up up the ranks from patrol officer to detective. I, I did a year in, in uh, 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 homicide. I was a homicide investigator. And then I spent three years, oh, we need to talk about this, three years with the, uh, the Austin Police Department internal affairs, investigating police officers. And then I moved on. And then when I, when I became an assistant chief, when, when Chief Nee selected me, appointed me as one of the assistant chiefs, uh, one of the first programs that, that that we did is we the problem this was back in 80 82 83 when the issue of the immigrants getting victimized so fast forward to 2000 and it was still happening i mean it it, it really hadn't changed so what chief knee wanted me to do because it hadn't changed and and at one point there were Several, not only the robberies continued, but there were a lot of homicides also. And at one point, 47%, 47% of the robberies, armed robberies in Austin were, guess what, against immigrants, 47%. So basically he says, I want you to do something about this. So what we did is we've, I put a team together. One of the reasons, one of the things we found out from doing a lot of research was that the immigrants were, were being attacked and robbed because, guess what? They carried a, a lot of cash on them. They would have, and this was, I mean, based on my experience, you would have anywhere from five to eight immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants, living in an apartment. 
And so they couldn't leave their money there. They couldn't put it into a bank. So they would carry with that. And guess what? The, the, the criminals knew that. So what we did, several of us went to several banks and everybody just laughed at us, a lot of these banks, because we, what we wanted to do was allow undocumented immigrants to open a bank account. So, so we went to one bank. The last bank that we went to was Wells Fargo. And they said, we'll help you. So it, it took a long time. It was about six months because there was a lot of, they had to make sure it was legally possible to, to do this. We got it where Wells Fargo allowed uh, immigrants, undocumented immigrants, to open bank account with an ID. And we worked with the Mexican consulate, really closely with the Mexican, Mexican consulate. Wells Fargo became very, very successful. There were so many bank accounts that were being opened. And, and one of the selling points is that we told them you can use an ATM card. They could send money or give a card to their f- families back home and the families could withdraw the money without paying a whole lot of month so sent to send the money back. So that was, you know, that, that, that was a way of trying to stop some of the violence against the immigrant. Now, you mentioned with your police work, working in the homicide unit for a year. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, like, that was just a year, whereas other things, you were there a little longer. Is it just because of the work was just um, too much? In my opinion, being a homicide investigator is like the epitome of being a police officer. So I really wanted to work homicide. But once you start, it, it takes a real special person to be a homicide investigator. And I, obviously it wasn't. I, 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 one thing I, I had a real difficult time with was dealing with the survivors. That was very, very, very difficult because they pin their hopes on you that you're you're gonna you know bring to justice the the the, the suspect and and but and and you work when you work a homicide case you work nonstop I mean when it, when it first happens you work nonstop to try to solve it and so and then when the doors start closing when you do all your investigations it's very very difficult because guess what your mind is just like so cluttered with information on this homicide and it and it doesn't sh- turn off it doesn't shut off when you when you go home so i found that very difficult that was very very difficult you know and i had dealt with working homicide cases when i was in the hispanic crimes unit but it was different because we'd work the case find out who did it, and then we'd hand it over to the homicide, you know. But in, in working in the homicide, that case, that baby's yours until, and it was it was just very, very, very difficult for me. To, uh, um, but I, I was blessed. I think God blessed me because guess what? Uh, the, in the, the head of the Internal Affairs, also Police Department Internal Affairs, one day came to my office and said, I want you, you want to come work for me? And I never thought of myself as working for a homicide because you become a pariah once you start working for the homicide. I mean, excuse me, for the internal affairs. You do. You become your. And so, but I, I jumped at it. I says, I'll do it. So that was, so I was, after a year, I was very happy to 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 move on. As, as an investigator in internal affairs, your job is just to, just to find the facts, find the facts. And then you present the facts to to your lieutenant, and then they decide which side whether if that person that officer is going to get fired or days off. But I I enjoyed working in internal affairs because once again there was people that had no business being police officers, 
I mean, you you name it, you you would not believe what police officers are capable of doing in terms of violating the law, violating policy procedures. Uh, but I hope that people who listen to this will, especially, will understand is that yes, there are some bad cops. In my personal experience, there was only a small group, a small percentage of the whole department that had no business being police officers. You have a lot of really, really good police officers. I mean, good police officers that go beyond and way beyond, you know, their regular safers that they work eight hours, but they'll continue working or they'll come back on their on their own days off to help people. Uh, for example, we had we had officers that regularly did this that went out into the community on their own time and would help people. There are some really, really good officers. But then again, on the other side, I mean, these people protesting, I understand because I saw the, the worst of the worst when I was in internal affairs. And we terminated a lot of officers. So how did you end up becoming a U.N. ambassador after? Well, I was a, I was a, I was a United Nations senior police advisor. In other words, so how I became, this is very interesting. The State Department submitted my name to the United Nations to, for a position was opening up. They were really interested in what the work I had done with the immigrants. And, uh, and so the, the position I was applying for was in the Sudan. And but when I interviewed, the position had already been filled. So, but they asked me, "How would you be interested in uh, in working as a senior police advisor in Sierra Leone, West Africa?" And I jumped at it. Says, "I'll do it." So that I was able to. I took the. I, I retired. I was going to retire from the police department with 25 years, and I asked the UN if I could if I could wait six months to take that job. So I could hit 25 years. And basically, they needed me now. So I said, okay, I'll leave. So I left uh, after 24 and a half years. So I, I retired from the police department uh, March 2006. A week later, I was in Sierra Leone, West Africa. Can you elaborate on your experience in Sierra Leone and what you did there? Oh, it's, when, I, when I arrived in, in Sierra Leone, there was an 11-year war, real brutal civil war. The war ended in 2001, 2002, I remember correctly, 2001, 2002. And then the United Nations sent in 17,000 peacekeeping troops into, into, the, into the country. So when I arrived in March of 2006, the United Nations pulled out all their troops and left, left only 30, me with my 30 police advisors, the military with their about 20 police advisors, I mean, military advisors. And, and the violence was still occurring. I mean, there was still political violence all over the country. And our job, my job specifically, was to prepare, and my team, was to prepare the Sierra Leone police for the 2007, 2007 presidential and parliamentary elections. And this was going to be the first time that the that the government of Sierra Leone was going to do it themselves. Before it was the the UN that was doing the elections. So when I first got there, the Sierra Leone police at the drop of a hat would just fire into a into a crowd. Our job was telling them, no, you can't do, you just can't do that. And our job, my teams, was to to train them in crowd control. And so that's what my team, along with the British, were doing. 
And our job, we trained, uh, we trained thousands of officers because, and not only did we train the, the, the team that was going to do the, the crowd control, but we had to train officers in, in providing security at all the different uh, polling, uh, polling uh, centers throughout the country. We had to develop an operational plan security operational plan to provide security for the whole during the elections and then not only that and this was a, this was my baby i was basically it told me you know you have to have the police ready if not you know, it's going to be on you plus we had to develop uh, a budget uh, and we were working my team were working about six seven days a week because it's really 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 difficult preparing for an election i was so proud of my team because not one single person was killed during the elections due to elections-related violence in Sierra Leone, which is which is unheard of in Africa. I mean, at that time when I was in Africa, I mean, it was it was incredible. So that's what my job was to prepare them for the elections, and then that was the 2007, 2008. Guess what? We had to prepare them for then the local government elections, which which was going to be just as volatile if we didn't do it right. And so we did that. And then my last two years when I was in, in Sierra Leone, the president pretty much asked that I develop uh, uh, something to stop the cocaine. The, the, there was a lot of cocaine coming into West Africa from uh, Venezuela and, uh, uh, and Colombia. And a lot of cocaine. So we're talking about shiploads, airplane loads. So... And we developed, basically what we did, we developed an international uh, uh, um, drug task force. And so that was, that was a trip also. I mean, that was really, really, uh, that was really difficult. And we had, to, we had so many countries helping. We had uh, Germany, the United States, we, uh, me, England. I mean, we had so many, they, they, were, they, wanted, they wanted us to succeed because it was getting, some of the countries in West Africa had become narco states. And we were trying to keep that from happening in Sierra Leone. So that's what I did my last uh, two, two years there. Did you work in any other countries while you were with the UN or were you just in Sierra Leone? No, those five, five years specifically just in Sierra Leone. And then after I finished my mission there in Sierra Leone, I was asked by, by the UN if I would be interested in, in, uh, in taking the senior police advisor position in Afghanistan. And I jumped at that also. And, you know, after 9-11, I, I just felt I hadn't done enough. I just felt like I hadn't done enough with my life, even though I was a police officer, to do something. Because, I mean, 9-11, when that happened, it was just like you wanted to do something, you know. But, we, but So I jumped at the chance because, you know, at that point, regardless of what anybody says, Afghanistan was based in a war at the time, you know. And, uh, and so... So, uh, yeah, I took the job, and I spent three, right at, just under three years there. And that was, I, I, I had a great team. I loved what, what, what we were doing. We focused on just helping the Afghan women police, female police officers. And that was with the European Union. And the reason we decided to do that, because... Women are treated, it's an understatement, women are treated very, very badly in Afghanistan, badly. Uh, and so you, you had women police officers 
But some of these women police officers were doing real menial things. And so what we wanted to do with the European Union is let's focus on, on training Afghan female police officers to do investigations in domestic violence. Because, oh, there was a lot of domestic violence, abuse of women. I mean, uh, I mean, it, really bad. I mean, they would be violated, tongues would be cut off. Uh, it got so bad that women were was self emoliation where they burn themselves because things they had no, they didn't think they had an avenue for help because the culture, the culture is such that a woman. And I'm speaking generally. A woman cannot go to a male police officer to report uh, being abused. They will not go, you know, because it's it's taboo that a woman, you know, be found talking to someone not her, you know, her. And things are changing the way they were when I was there, but but that still happened. So that's why we decided to train women. So if uh, women police officers, so. If someone gets abused, they have an avenue to go to, to to report the abuse. So it was fantastic. I mean, at one point, I had all women working on my team because I kept telling the United Nations, look, send me women police advisors because we're going to be working with, with women. Like I said, I thought we did with the European Union. It was, a, it was, it was great. Uh along with this dying corps organization that had police officers also. And then another thing that we did, uh, we focused on is, and this was again with the European Union uh, police advisors, we decided that the, the people, the, the citizens of Afghanistan did not trust police. A lot of the people, especially in the southern part of, of, of Afghanistan, and this is through our experience from, you know, because we dealt with a lot with Af a lot of Afghan citizens, was that they would not go to the police because the police wouldn't do anything. So guess who they went to? They went to the Taliban. Because guess what? They were, they were telling, this is what they were telling us. And I'm not trying to romant rom romanticize the, the Taliban because, no. so, but the Taliban, they'd go to and report the crime to the Taliban because they couldn't trust the police. And the Taliban would take care of the problem. So we wanted to change that. We wanted the people to start trusting the, the police. And we wanted the police to start trusting the community. And we wanted the police to actually start doing something. You know, if, they, if a crime was committed, then solve it. Do something about it. We decided that what we have to do is we have to get the police to start working with the community. And we, got, we have to get the, 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 the community to trust the police and the police to trust the community. So we had a program where we would bring them in. We'd all bring them in and have, like, lunch with them. And then we tr during the trainings. But just the, the, the thing of having breaking bread with each other, they started to just to talk to each other. And then when we started training them, it was a training for the community and the police how to work with each other. Uh, we started seeing some changes. Uh, um, some of the some of the things that were fantastic, like for instance, it got to the point where, and this all it is is just community policing. That's what we're do, doing. Is community policing is getting the community to work with the police and the police to work with the community. So we we were this was part of our program, and so it got to the point where 
we st- the police, they started reporting this to us. The community would start calling them and says, hey, there's a bomb on this bike or there's a bomb under this, this box. That's, that's, that's what we were doing. And I, I loved it, you know, but it was dangerous. <laughs> when did you retire from your UN work and why? I retired from the UN after eight years. I wanted to stay there 10. I wanted to stay there 10. But uh, I retired after right at eight years in uh, the December of 2013. And the reason I retired is because the boss, the boss, my wife, says enough is enough. You need to come home. Because towards the end, things were starting to get starting to get worse. There was a lot of bombings. I mean, a lot of bombings. We lived in a green zone. And in this green zone, downtown Kabul, and in this green zone, you had the NATO headquarters. You had an American base, Camp Eggers. You had the presidential palace. You had a bunch of different embassies. And then us, and it's it's just a big, like a big square, and 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 each individual entity in the green zone had their own big blast walls with Constantine. Our the our compound was constantly under attack. Uh, some of these European Union uh, uh, advisors they were under attack. Luckily, ours never came under attack, but things started getting different, difficult, and I hated to leave. Because we had just started, the Dutch government gave me right at $4 million. And they, because they liked what we were going to do with helping the women and, and the community policing. So we had, we started this program and the program was fantastic. And so finally, as the, the wife said, the boss, the big boss, he says, you, you need to come home. You know, after eight years is enough. So uh, I was, I remember I was getting ready to leave and uh, the UN said, please, please, at least stay here one more year. But uh, the big boss said no. <laughs> so that's I, I came back at the end of December of 2013. And so how have you been spending your days in Austin since? Oh, let me tell you. Uh, I think the wife forgets that I'm retired because the wife loves old houses. So um, we, we restored uh, a 1920 house a 1947 house, and an 1880 cabin. And then um, on my time that I had, I, I started, I wrote a, a memoir. So I wrote a memoir, and that is the hardest thing anybody will ever do. I found it very difficult. It took me 14 months to finish my memoir, but it's taken several years just to, and this was constantly working on it. You, you continue to have to you know, make revisions, make revisions, and so, and but that's been that's been a lot of work also. And uh, I started already. I've already started. I've sent uh, fifty-two agents. I've sent out to fifty-two agents. And so, they've all said no. But that's one thing they teach you in uh, these all these agents where you go to these workshops. They'll tell you expect rejection because that's part of the, that's part of the process. If you got thin skin, they said, don't do it because you're going to get rejected. The book is framed. During the 11 hours I spent in an underground bunker during a Taliban attack. So, uh, and then when they closed that big old iron gate underneath the, the, the ground, it's a big iron door. When it slams, you know, you, it's, you're, you can't hear anything. I mean, you just can't. So, you're, you're, so you, you go into this bunker and there's nothing to do except for wait, wait, wait. 
And then the problem is, while you're sitting there just not doing anything, all these demons from, you know, what happened to you when you were a kid, all the bad things you saw as a police officer, and then some of the things I saw in, in Sierra Leone, all these things start coming back, and you start living it. So that's the way the story is framed, you know, uh, having to, to, to face your demons while this attack is going on. And it's, and it's once again, it's about finding finding faith again in all places of underground <laughs> in a bunker. As we come to the end of our interview here, there's a question that I ask everyone who uh-huh. comes on that ties into the name of the podcast of Truly Texan. And so that question is, for you, what does it mean to be Texan? Being Texan to me means, and this is just my personal opinion, specifically to me, being Texan is really valuing your culture. You know, like for me, the Mexican-American, because the ties for us, for me specific, for my family, because of our grandparents, is very, is there's a strong tie between the United States, with us and Mexico. Don't forget about your culture. You know, don't forget about it because that's what made you that's what that's how you in because my grandparents because of their their because of them that's where I'm here you know I'm here at this point because of you know of them and what they brought with them from Mexico so just accept it cherish it and respect that and don't let it die in you where can people reach out to you? And I know that you're working on a special oh. event right now. So where can people learn more about that? We are organizing. There's a group of us that are organizing the Johnston High School 50th Year Reunion. We're still alive. <laughs> and it's going to be held October the 14th. What we're, what we're doing is, because of the covid the class of seven, we're 73, class of 71, 72, they weren't able to have their reunion because of the COVID. So so we of the 73, class of 73, decided to invite them. So we're having a, a, a reunion, 50th reunion for seven, the class of 70, 71, 72, and 73. So if anybody's out there has grandparents uh, that went to Johnston in, in, back in the 70s, tell them that... Uh, the reunion, we're going to have a, a, a dance and a dinner, nice ballroom, uh, and it's going to be October the 14th, uh, uh, and it's going to be held at the Onion Creek uh, Ballroom. And that's just off of 35 on Slaughter Lane. And uh, let me just give you the the the, uh, the website uh, that you can, the email that you can, if you are interested in attending. And uh, it's going to be Johnston. All one, all one word. Johnston Rams, class of nineteen seventy three, at gmail dot com. J o h n s t o n Rams, class of seventy three at gmail dot com. It's gonna be, it's gonna be very classy. You're gonna, I mean, if you're out there and you're in one of these classes, please, 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 please come, and just. Contact us and come join us. That sounds awesome. Well, thank you so very much for your time and for coming on to share your story today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for being patient with this old man. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at HannahOrtegaATX. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.